Um, we as a fellowship group, uh, we've been on break for some time, but if you've been with us throughout the year, we've been plowing ahead, making our way through the book of Romans. And tonight, as a community, we will be looking at Romans chapter 9. So if you have your copy of God's Word, open them to Romans chapter 9. Our passage tonight will be Romans chapter 9, beginning verse 14, all the way to verse 23. I'll go ahead and read our passage for us, and then we will invite the Lord, asking for His Spirit to work upon our hearts and illumine our minds. So let's read. This is the Word of God. Romans 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scriptures says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom Ever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 19. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use? and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Let's pray. God, may we check our egos at the door and seal our lips shut that you might speak. Father, we pray that you would help us to humble ourselves and come before your word, to know that we are desperate, needy, and fallen people, that even in peering into your perfect word, we need help. Lord, because our vision is clouded by so many things that we bring to the table, baggage and preconceived notions And we pray that we would be able to submit rightly to your word. That it is is cut straight before us, that our hearts would be pierced and undone. That you might mold us and make us more like your son because we understand truth. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us, Lord, uh, to come to grips with tough and difficult teachings at times things that offend, but Lord, we know your character and therefore can, with humility, receive your word. We pray that this would cause us to glory more in you, to be in awe of what you've done and who you are, that we might worship you rightly as you deserve. And so elevate our vision of you to see you in all your splendor and majesty, your sovereignty, your power, your mercy and compassion that our hearts would be inflamed and enraptured by 
Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's not fair. It's not fair. Kids are the most frequent, the most vocal in expressing this sentiment, whether it's in who gets to sit shotgun or arguing over the bigger slice of cake. Children can often operate based on what they perceive to be right, just. What is fair from their little vantage point. You know, Dad, write it down, keep track. We need to take turns for the front seat. Or Dad, bring out the ruler and the scale. We need exactly equal pieces of dessert. But as a parent, and even as young adults, we can come up with a number of answers and explanations where it's not as simple as it seems. Perhaps one sibling is allowed to sit in the front because the younger one is too small and still needs a booster seat. They'd get crushed if they sat shotgun and there was a car accident. Or perhaps one kid is a diabetic, and so they can't consume as much sugar. To give them the same slice of cake would be really bad for them. As adults, with more life experience and wisdom, we know better. Our evaluation of what's fair and unfair, just and unjust, is made from an elevated position, from knowledge that exceeds a child's understanding. And yet, we often forget this dynamic, this principle, when we are in the inferior position, when we are childlike. We try to judge what's fair and just from our limited perspective, from a finite understanding. And sure, we acknowledge there's a big difference between a child and an adult. But we have a tough time accepting that truth when it comes to us and God. And listen, the distance and difference between us and God is far greater than a child and adult. Because at least a child and an adult, well, they're both humans, created beings. But God, God is creator. He is in a separate category, a class of his own. He has divine faculties, access to resources and information we are not privy to. So God, God always always knows better. And this is crucial to establish out the gates at the outset of tonight's passage. Because what we will soon examine may rub us the wrong way. It may insult us or be difficult to comprehend. But praxis, we don't need to know everything. Just enough. God is God. And we are not. And more than being offended by that truth, it actually frees us to trust and obey. Since God is sovereign and in control, it means we don't have to be. Since God is infinitely wise, we don't need to have all of life's mysteries and troubles figured out. Now, this doesn't mean we're completely clueless 
left in the dark. Christianity is not a blind faith. Christianity is a faith in a glorious God and what he has revealed. And in his kindness, God has provided everything, everything necessary for life and godliness. The question is, do you believe that? Do you believe him? Because tonight, as we dive into the deep end of the doctrinal swimming pool, we'll attempt to wrap our minds around truth. That quite honestly, this side of glory, we will never fully be able to. Tonight, as introduced, we study the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election, how God sovereignly chooses who he saves. That our profession of faith is a byproduct of God's picking, of God's electing of us in eternity past, in the divine counsel. Paul has already alluded to this concept back in Romans 8, 29 to 30. There he makes mention that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And there's no mention of our activity in those two verses. The spotlight is cast upon God and God alone. Obviously, I won't be able to address everything on this topic. You know, um, at retreat, if you're, if you're there, we did book giveaways, um, I don't know why I mentioned that. I don't have any books tonight to give away, so my bad for um, playing with your emotions. Um, I blame Chris uh, for whatever reason. But I can't, while I don't have books, I can make a few recommendations that I have personally found helpful in my struggle, in my wrestling with this doctrine. Uh, my favorite theologian, Jonathan Edwards, has a work called The Freedom of the Will. The Freedom of the Will. And so if you want to feel dumb and your brain hitting a ceiling, a cap, read his treaties. But really, Edwards is a sharp mind uh, in unpacking the, me- the mechanism of God's sovereignty and man's volition. Now, if you want something less intimidating, more accessible, maybe more of a modern treatment, R.C. Sproul has a book called Chosen by God, which I would commend to you. Uh, R.C. Sproul, Chosen by God. And lastly, if you're curious how divine sovereignty relates with our charge, our commission to preach the good news, there's J.I. Packer's classic, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. But let me say this. Whether you're studying this doctrine on your own or reading a book on the subject, our presuppositions about God the posture of our approach to this subject will largely influence and dictate if and how we receive what the Bible teaches, what the scriptures unfold for us. It was A.W. Tozer who said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You see, if we've already determined God to be small, impotent, cruel, then election will be an impossible teaching to embrace. 
But if we allow the scriptures to speak, if we think God to be big, wise, and good, then perhaps election is not a truth that upsets, but encourages, that edifies the saints. And the apostle intends for this doctrine to do exactly that to engender and promote greater reverence, greater awe, greater worship of God. Tonight, from the doctrine of election, Paul wants us to marvel at God's character displayed and God's categorical distinction. First, God's character displayed. Look again at verse 14. Paul starts off this section by saying, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Verse 14 follows on the heel of verse 13 where we read, as it is written, quoting the Old Testament, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. It's a familiar story from of old that Jacob and Esau were brothers from the same mother. In fact, they were twins. And yet before they were even born, God set his affection on one over the other. He chose. And that doesn't sit well with us. It seems random. It feels arbitrary. In our minds, we think it unjust, unfair. But the apostle Paul squashes such a conclusion. He states emphatically in the Greek, this is the strongest negation possible. May genota, by no means, may it never be. Let that thought never cross your mind. Now, before we delve deeper, before we continue, we need to lay out all of our cards on the table. Think about it. Why is election such a contentious and touchy topic? Well, I would suggest it's because we think everyone should have a fair shot of being loved, not hated, elected and chosen instead of passed over. That's a good default position to adopt, but such an expectation is derived from presuming that we're all worthy, that we're people with a blank slate, that we stand on equal footing. And yet study the Bible, and it doesn't depict us as starting from a position of neutrality. We already saw this in the book of Romans. Now we've all sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. None is righteous, no, not one. There are no qualified candidates for God's favor. Collectively, we're all guilty criminals. So picture that. God is not reviewing impressive resumes and selecting from stellar applications. He is strolling through the corridors of the county jail. If we want, if we truly, really want what's fair, everyone stays locked up. No exception. You see, you can only claim injustice if you don't deserve to be punished. But the truth of the matter is, what's undeserved is that any are sprung free. Beloved, you don't want fear. You want compassion. You want mercy. 
and praise God. This is who he is. Read on in verse 15. For he says to Moses, here's why there's no injustice on God's part. Paul now provides the evidence back in the Old Testament. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul quotes from Exodus 33. You can turn there if you want so that you can scan the context, see the passage for yourself. It is a very pivotal, a pivotal, important chapter in the book of the Bible. But if you need a recap, what happens in Exodus 32? It's a minor slip-up, a small mistake, infamously known as the golden calf incident. And for the people's idolatry, the Lord tells Moses that he's no longer be with them. He's no longer going to go with them. You want to forsake me? Okay, I will do the same to you. And the people realize they have messed up big time. There's nothing more terrifying than being abandoned by God. And so they are convicted of their sin and they repent. Moses steps in, intercedes, and pleads for God on their behalf to reaffirm his covenant vows, his commitment to his people. How will I know that we are on good terms again? Show me that you are still with us, God, by showing me your glory. And God replies to Moses in Exodus 33, verse 19. This is God's answer. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Our name is how we're identified. Right? It distinguishes us from others. And just as a side note, then the name Alan actually has Celtic origins, meaning handsome. So just a Fun FYI, that one's free for you. You're welcome. But a name is central to who we are, right? And in essence, what God is doing is God is telling Moses, you want to be assured that I am still with you? You want to see my glory? My glory is in who I am. It's in my name. And God then unpacks the meaning of his name. It's right there in the text. He explains the significance of his name in the next sentence. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. You see, brothers and sisters, mercy, compassion, these are part and parcel to God's identity. You recall when Moses is first charged to lead the Israelites out of Egypt and he whimpers to God, God, what are my credentials? You know, they're all going to laugh at me. I've been away for 40 years. What will I say to the people when they ask me, who sent you? What's God's name? And God responds, tell them, I am who I am. Tell them Yahweh has sent you. Yahweh. God's covenant name, literally in the Hebrew, I am who I am. Ascribing to God his godness, that he is independent, self-existent, exercising his sovereign will, which is why mercy and compassion are his to give. Mercy implies guilt. 
compassion some sort of suffering. And we have no right to demand mercy and compassion. They are God's prerogative. Do you see the connection then between his character and his name? The structure is the same. The meaning is being tied together and elaborated. God says, I am who I am. Therefore, I am merciful to whom I am merciful with. I am compassionate to whom I am compassionate on. The cries of injustice in verse 14 are quieted because God's purpose in election is not to appease our narrow conception of what's right and wrong, but to declare his mighty name, to manifest his glory, to be a billboard for his character in his choosing, that he is merciful, that he is compassionate. The Lord's commitment to a wayward, fickle, An unworthy people demonstrates his worthiness. It is the backdrop on which his mercy and compassion sparkle, his goodness and glory beam forth. And verse 16, you can turn back to Romans 9, verse 16 has us step back to take this view all in. It says, so then, referring to salvation So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The word for exertion is more woodenly running. Running. So you have running and willing, which captures everything. So from our strategy to our strength, from our mental prowess to our brute power, if we think we can save ourselves, we labor in vain. Paul is making it black and white. He's putting the capacities of man on one side and God on the other. Who's a better savior? Whether it's our inner desire or our outer effort, we are at the mercy of another Our salvation can't be earned. It must be given. It must be God at work in his electing, in his sovereign choosing to change us, to grant us new hearts and affections and faith. And to bolster his point, Paul references another Old Testament example, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh now, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I, God, might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, first thing first, we must remember Pharaoh was not some helpless and innocent victim. He was wicked through and through, ruthless to the Israelites, hostile to God himself. And that's why throughout the narrative, throughout the account in Exodus, Pharaoh is said to harden his own heart. 
The Bible wants us to see Pharaoh's resistance is real. He does so volitionally, willfully wicked. And it's not like God isn't merciful and compassionate to Pharaoh as well. You know, think about it. There are 10 plagues instead of one. 10 plagues, not just one. It wasn't a short conversation like, let my people go. No, okay, you're dead. Game over, right? No Prince of Egypt movie in 1998. No, God extended mercy and compassion by not striking Pharaoh down at the first instance of rebellion. These plagues didn't happen even back to back. Hours, days, weeks elapsed because God is patient. The Lord gave plenty of opportunities for Pharaoh to do what's right, to repent and obey, until Pharaoh's evilness was evident. His punishment just and deserved. And in the last confrontation at the crossing of the Red Sea, God reveals his might. He has ordained and raised this character so that all would recognize and proclaim he is who he says he is. He is glorious. He is God. He is merciful and compassionate. And the proof is in Exhibit A. God showcases his sovereign power when the Israelites are rescued from the clutches of Pharaoh, safely delivered out of Egyptian captivity. The waters part, the people walk through, and they are spared, not by man's will or exertion, but by the mercy and compassion of God. And Pharaoh, in contrast, His demise underscores the Lord's power when God and God alone is the decisive factor in who's rescued and who's destroyed. Paul concludes in verse 18. So then, he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. This is, I I think, where we get tripped up because we notice something peculiar when we read the Exodus account closely. Sometimes it's recorded that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Other times it's God. So how does this work? Who hardens Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh or God? And the correct answer is yes. (laughs) Now there is a tension here. But it stems from, again, our finitude. The scriptures have no qualms, no problems presenting God as sovereign and man responsible. When asked how he reconciles the two, Spurgeon replied, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. Both in the Bible are clearly taught. In fact, in the scriptures, God's sovereignty never excuses Man's responsibility. And that might be hard for us to harmonize because we feel like, well, in order to be held responsible for something, we need to be absolutely free, 100% autonomous. And yet, I think if we slow down, we would all readily admit there are limitations to our freedom. None of us 
exercise complete autonomy. You can't jump to the moon no matter how much you wish it or train for it. You can't know everything in the world even if you concentrate really hard. You see, our ability and choices are constrained by a myriad of restrictions. And not only that, but let's entertain if you really did have absolute free will. Do you know what that would entail? Well, if you have absolute free will, then I don't. Because that means you can impose your desires, your will, over mine. And press further, if you have absolute sovereign free will, then that renders God's will dependent, contingent upon yours, which is quite the plot twist, if I can say so. Only one individual can exercise, can possess absolute self-determining free will, and that must be God because that's what it means to be God. So if we don't have absolute free will, does that we mean we are in the clear? That we are absolved of any responsibility for our actions? No, again, the Bible never claims moral ability as a prerequisite for culpability. Okay, so the Bible never claims moral ability as a prerequisite for culpability. Now we are getting into the deep end of things. And I am indebted to Jonathan Edwards for shedding light on this. Because Edwards makes a distinction between natural ability and moral ability. Natural ability and moral ability. Hang in there with me. Natural ability would be like if I told you to wash the dishes when you are tied up and bound to a chair. You may earnestly want to wash the dishes, but because you're tied up, you are physically prevented from obeying. It would be wrong for me then to punish you. On the other hand, moral ability is telling you to wash the dishes, but you simply refuse to do so. In this scenario, you're not bound to the chair, but you sit there with crossed arms and a smug look in blatant defiance. You see the difference? No one sins reluctantly. No one rejects God begrudgingly because they are confined from obeying. When we're punished for our sin, it is not owing to physical constraint, but because we're corrupt, because we have rebellious hearts, that at the end of the day, we do what we want. The two are not in conflict. We do what we want. Our actions align with our affections. The mechanism, the mechanism of falling after our hearts, well, that's intact. What isn't is our hearts itself. And for that, God holds us accountable. Jesus says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. The Puritans are renowned for saying the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The fault is not with the sun. God was merciful and gracious to both Israel and Pharaoh, but they had different responses. 
And ultimately, Pharaoh is guilty because his rebellion is a reflection of his hard heart. His wicked behavior mirrors his wicked desires. He is true to himself. He does what he wants. And for that, he is responsible. For that, he is culpable. And this leads us to the next thing the apostle wants us to marvel at. So we've seen God's character display, his sovereignty, his mercy, his compassion, his power, his glory. Now we transition to our second point, how the doctrine of election, how God's choosing of who will be saved also reveals God's categorical distinction. God's categorical distinction. We've touched upon this in verse 18, but this is his main focal point in verse 19 on. Paul resumes, You will say to me then, why does he, God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul anticipates the pushback, and he articulates the objection. If God is sovereign over all things, including our wills, how can we be held responsible? And yet I remind you, such a conclusion is a human one. It's based on what makes sense to us, what is logical in our little minds. But listen, every day we live with paradoxes we're comfortable with. Scientists are baffled by how the world has infinite space, yet also a definite end. That light is made up of both particles and waves. Or how about a contradictory statement like, there is no absolute truth. Now please, I don't need you geniuses and nerds approaching me after service to correct and explain to me uh, why I'm wrong or how, how this works. I, I, I'm stupid, I get it, okay? I'm merely pointing out that there are tensions we daily experience, questions we don't necessarily have all the answers to, and that's okay. So should it surprise us if there is a level of mystery when we dabble in the realm of the divine, when it comes to God and his operations? I mean, have you tried explaining the doctrine of the Trinity or the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's not to say they aren't true or rational, but there is an aspect, an element, where it may not necessarily accord with every rule of human logic or experience. There needs to be space in our thinking, in our understanding for the divine. After all, you do realize if you could exhaustively grasp and explain everything about God, you would be above him and he would be beneath you. God would be small. But practice, I don't want a God I can fully comprehend because he would cease to be God to me. Only one of us can be divine. And that should cause us to be slow to speak and quick to listen. God is not at our beckoning. And we must recognize he is not accountable to us, but us to him. In fact, to the objection raised in verse 19, look at what Paul does. He doesn't appeal to philosophical arguments or empirical evidence. His answer is to plant us before God and consider who God is and who we are. 
And it's the, the strategy that God employs in the book of Job. You remember that when Job is a righteous man, but he has all this tragedy raining in upon his life. And he thinks, if I could just have a conversation with God, I can explain to him why I don't deserve these things. And how does God respond? Not by detailing all the reasons why God allowed these things to come into Job's life. This is God's response. God questions Job. You know, were you there when the gazelle gave birth? Were you there when I fashioned the hippopotamus? And Job's like, uh, no. And then God continues in the same line of argument, question after question, to stress that singular point, I am God and you are not. I am creator, your creature. And this is what Paul does here. Look at verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now, Paul isn't prohibiting us from asking questions. We should ask good and honest questions. I've got a lot of questions, like what was God thinking when he created the hippopotamus, right? It is perfectly okay to be genuinely curious, to be interested and intrigued. What Paul warns against isn't genuine curiosity, but criticism. Criticism under the guise of a question. You know, when Chris asked me, Alan, why are you such a fool? He's not really interested in getting a fair response. What is he doing? He's being a bully, right? He's being mean to me, asserting how I'm dumb. Now, Paul's contention here isn't against asking honest questions. Paul's contention is against arrogantly answering back, as if God owes us something. And the apostle is putting us in our proper place. The contrast is right there. Oh, man, God. We are not in a position to scrutinize the wisdom of the infinite. Never forget we are creatures. We tread on dangerous ground when we tower over and indict the creator. Nothing good comes of that. Paul teases out how preposterous, how ridiculous this scene would be by illustration. Look at verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? I'm sure many of you, like me, grew up playing Legos. You know, in your imagination, you came up with all sorts of fancy storylines. You create these elaborate worlds, crafting funky buildings and vehicles, assigning certain Lego people to play certain roles. You know, as the director, you decided how the characters interacted, and their appearance, their abilities, ambitions, whether they were the protagonists or villains in the story. But never, never in your playtime did any of the Lego people suddenly pause and break the fourth wall to point at you and put you on trial. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? How come you made me like this? You know, if that happened, I want you to get up right out of your seat and go straight to biblical counseling. <laughs> but let's suspend reality and say you were arraigned and accused 
by the Lego people. And you may have very good reasons for what you do. You could try explaining to this little plastic Lego piece that you are a human being on planet Earth taking a break from work and just enjoying a hobby. You could even share with them how you are orchestrating everything to tell a riveting narrative, a glorious story that showcases your brilliant mind, your creativity, your personality. But the sheer idea of having to report to the men and women of the Lego world, well, it's just plain silly. It's fiction. Why? Because our existence is in worlds apart from theirs. The little Lego figurine is not going to comprehend everything you share. And if it rebels and rejects, well, I don't like that answer. I refuse to listen to you and your plan. I'm not going to do a single thing you want. And if he repeatedly goes rogue and disobeys, you know what you're going to do. You're going to pluck him up and put him in that recycle bin. Goodbye. And look, no one would blame you, right? The police aren't going to knock on your door and throw, on, throw, throw cuffs on your wrists. There is a clear distinction between you and the Lego universe. Paul here is presenting the same parallel. The potter, the creator, he has the right to fashion his creation for his purposes. He takes a chunk of clay to, to mold it into a small jewelry box to hold what's precious to him. And from the same lump... He has all the authority to pinch off another chunk of clay to shape and fashion a trash can and to fault the potter for making different vessels is to mistake creator from created. He has his reasons. He has his purposes. And for us, God discloses his in verse 22. What if, as Paul's way of soft-pedaling it as a suggestion. I love that. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So here the apostles suggest a plausible explanation for God's election. With the vessels of wrath, those of Pharaoh's ilk, who continually spurn God and his grace, they serve to highlight to broadcast the Lord's patience, wrath, and power. Instead of being annihilated on the spot, every act of rebellion God tolerates only confirms how magnanimous and long-suffering he is. You know, someone crosses us once, maybe two or three times if we're really nice, well, we still cross them off the list. God has endured centuries, generations of disobedience, the defamation of his holy name, so that when the full weight of his wrath falls, there's no denying our condemnation. And his power is announced in both his patience and final vindication, in his self-control and his perfect justice. And this paves the way to behold another facet of God's glory, of God's categorical distinction. And this appears to be the sequence and transition in verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. You notice the order? 
So he's talked about vessels of wrath, and now emerges the vessels of mercy and their intended purpose. If you're an artist, you, you probably need a spectrum of colors to paint a beautiful picture. You utilize a full range of them, right? The calming tones of blue, vibrant shades of green or bold reds to create, to illustrate a masterpiece. But I imagine it would be a difficult task if you only had black on the color palette. Dark pigments are necessary, but a lot of time it's to allow other objects in the portrait to be featured, to pop and shine. The bleak background of destruction allows our eyes to shift and to focus on the foreground, to marvel at his glory in salvation, that for vessels of mercy, there is a destiny that does not end in destruction. And what ought to shock us is not that God judges, but that he even saves. That he would elect any and choose to show mercy. What ought to leave us stumped is not surveying heaven and wondering who didn't make it and why. What leaves us truly floored is peering at hell, stunned that any of us are spared. Now, this passage lends to be headier than most, and we've covered a lot of ground. The temptation is to be overwhelmed by doctrinal information or just have cerebral cortex overload. But Paul's desire is more than just intellectual stretching. Yes, we should and we have to wrestle with tough theology. But listen, big truths are meant to make for soft hearts. So as we wrap things up tonight, let me offer a few takeaways for how the doctrine of election should impact our lives and cultivate greater love for others, greater worship for God. First, I would suggest that in evangelism, the doctrine of election declares everyone is fair game. In evangelism, the doctrine of election declares everyone is fair game. You see, if we properly understand the doctrine of election, we shouldn't be stymied from sharing the gospel, but stimulated towards it. Your atheist boss, your stubborn parents, your old backsliding youth group friends, your pagan coworkers, your seeking roommate, as far as we can discern, they all have the same shot. This passage shows us salvation is not contingent upon our evaluation whether a person is good or bad, worthy or unworthy, whether they show any signs of exertion or will towards God. Our opinion, and frankly theirs too, doesn't enter into the equation. The metric is whether they are chosen. And God does not give us any special insight or indication for the elect, except for how they respond to the good news of Jesus Christ, which means our job is to get the good news out there. The secret things belong to the Lord. Our responsibility, as we've heard on Sunday, as to what he has revealed. We prove, we believe in the authority and sovereignty of God when we trust that he has ordained the end and also the means 
to that end. We should evangelize with such zeal, peace, and grace in such a manner that the only possible explanation for why someone doesn't come to Christ is because they aren't of the elect. But it is not our business to determine that. No one misses out on salvation because they aren't of the elect. Hear that. No one misses out on salvation because they aren't of the elect, but because they refuse to repent and believe. So we herald the good news of salvation to anyone and everyone. Scattering seeds, sleeping and leaving the rest to God. Second, in sanctification, the doctrine of election comforts. In sanctification, the doctrine of election comforts. Now with election we often get it backwards. The direction stress is not, am I elect? Well, I think so. Therefore, I will repent and believe. Now, the point of entry, as I mentioned, is always, I repent and believe. And it is my obedience that assures and confirms I am of the elect. Think of it like this. It'd be like if I announce, I love my friends. I love my friends. And it makes you wonder, am I a friend or am I not? You know, do I have this privilege, this distinct title? But that's misguided. Your main concern isn't to stress about a label. Your concern is to be a friend, and then you don't have to worry about it. You can then rest easy knowing your love, and then live out of that reality. You see, the doctrine of election is reserved, actually, for believers to comfort them. That salvation belongs to the Lord, and those who are truly His will never be lost or abandoned. And continual obedience strengthens our assurance, further confirming the authenticity of our faith. The doctrine of election is aimed more at the heart than the head. And sadly, we do ourselves a disservice when we turn this precious doctrine on its head, when it sows doubt, when it was always intended to produce hope. That's how you can discern if you understand it. Does it foster greater confidence in Christ's likeness, a greater trust in God, that in Christ you are chosen person, a chosen people, and that enables you to press on knowing that he is for you. It empowers you to obey his commands, to relish in your relationship with God, because all he instructs, all he ordains, it's for your joy, for your eternal good. It enables you also to endure, to persevere, to stand with firm footing that whatever happens in this lifetime, loneliness, poverty, cancer, unemployment, betrayal, death, all those things will not alter what God has destined for you in the next. Lastly, in response, the doctrine of election cultivates humility for us and honor for God. In response, the doctrine of election cultivates humility for us and honor for God. Look at the last note reverberating forth from verse 23. The riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he, he has prepared beforehand for glory. The doctrine of election should deepen our appreciation of Jesus Christ and increase our delight in the gospel. <clears throat> our greatest confusion 
shouldn't be working out all the nitty-gritty details, all the issues of election. Our greatest confusion, you know what our greatest confusion should be? Why me? Why me? Why would God save a sinner, someone like me? And for that question, there is no sufficient answer, but praise God, a God who is merciful and compassionate. Christians who understand the doctrine of election should be the humblest people on the face of the planet. As Edwards said, just a reality check, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. At the cross, God's character is on full display, and we behold how God's wrath, patience, justice, compassion, love, how they all converge. Psalm 85, 10 says, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. At the cross, God's categorical distinction is plain as day, for no human mind would concoct such a plan of redemption. Only a creator whose ways are higher than our ways, whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We are humbled to be shown mercy and compassion, and we are honored to render, therefore, all glory to the one above. God is God. Let's pray. Lord, we behold marvelous things in your word, things that cause not only our minds to peak, but our souls to soar with amazement, with delight and joy as we consider that we have been saved and it is a miracle. It is not something we are entitled to, but it is an act, an act of God that you would pluck us from our hell-bent path and deliver us into the kingdom of your Son, that you would grant us new life through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that this would challenge and stretch us, that it would cause us to bend our knees and render all praise and glory to you, that it would promote humility in our hearts and in this community, that it would foster and fuel a greater passion to proclaim your name to those that remain in the darkness. Father, that it would comfort and shore up any weakness of heart that we may press on, knowing that it is not by surely our exertion or will, but by your working in us and through us. And so, Father, be with us. Help us to mull over these things, to meditate. Help us to worship well and draw closer to your Son, by whom we are given much mercy and compassion. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.